This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at manadeprived.com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. Roman. Michael J. I feel like a failure this week. Why? Is it because you uh, went 0-2 at the Grand Prix? No. No? What about when you punted your uh, on-camera feature match? Uh, Still no. Still no. Uh, It was because I was looking for an article from 2012 when I was last writer of the year at Star City. And I didn't set the bounds correctly in okay. the, the dates, and I accidentally took an article from 2013, February the 1st, 2013, to be exact. All right, that's just, just about four years ago. Yeah, but, and I know that's way more recent than a lot of the articles we've, we've looked at. You know, I think last week we looked at an article from 2000 or something. Yeah. Uh, but I actually, I forgot that I'd written this article, but it seemed really fun, and I thought maybe we could, we could do a more recent one. All right, let's check it out. It's called Top Right, Bottom Left, Justice. What the hell does that even mean? We're about to find out. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So, I am doing prep for the upcoming Star City Games Legacy Open in Edison, New Jersey next weekend. Honestly, I am probably just going to attack with Goblin Guides and cross my fingers that Price of Progress sticks. But, I want to try a variety of decks just to make sure I don't miss anything. For me... I figure the sun has set on my beloved Cephalid Breakfast. It's not that I don't think that a turn 2 kill deck with Force of Will backup and a completely different awesome side plan isn't viable. It's that, with the proliferation of main deck Deathrite Shamans, I don't necessarily want that turn 2 kill to require me to stick a Dread Return. On that subject, I have been testing Jerry Thompson's old Shoal and Tell deck, which basically offers everything any thinking man could ever want in a deck list. All right, Show and Tell by Mike Flores. Well, really by Jerry Thompson. Really by Jerry Thompson. Four Bloodied Agent, four Progenitus, uh, one Island, four Ink Moth Nexus, four Misty Rainforest, four Scalding Tarn, four Underground Sea. Two Chrome Mox, four Blazing Shoal, four Brainstorm, four Days, four Force of Will, four Intuition, two Misdirection, four Ponder, Three show and tell, four thought Sideboard, two dismember, two spell pierce, four submerge, one surgical extraction, three emerald the aeons torn, one show and tell, two city of traders. All right, so what's this deck trying to do, Michael J? So it's got eight of the non glistener elf infect threats. It's got blighted agent and Ink Moth Nexus. You could theoretically be attacking with either of those creatures on the second turn because the deck also has Chrome Mox. Yep. And this is a format where you've got Chrome Mox Day's Brainstorm, for example, which mm-hmm. is a different level of speed than most Infect decks. And the thing that makes it super fun is you can go Blazing Shoal Progenitus. Progenitus is uh, both a red card and a blue card, <laughs> so you can force with it and you can oh, Blazing gotcha. Shoal with it. 
I'm gonna keep. Bo- Remind me what Blazing Shoal does again. So Blazing Shoal. I know Shoal. it's banned in modern. Yeah, <laughs> it's banned. In, it is banned in modern. So it's like a howl from beyond. Uh, that for for however much uh, a thing that you RFG, is. Oh, but you gotcha. could just howl from beyond for RRX or something. Gotcha, but, gotcha. But yeah, so you could just you just for sure just stick a million really poison counters yeah. on somebody on turn two. But you can also draw Progenitus and not draw it with Blazing Shoal, even though you have these awesome cards like Ponder and Brainstorm. So you could just show and tell the Progenitus. Sure. And so and then you have a Progenitus in play, and that's probably going to kill them in, like, two attacks, because Progenitus is extremely difficult to deal with once mm-hmm. it's in play. So uh, I liked this deck because it had t- uh, multiple different very fast kills, including essentially a turn two kill you're attacking from a bunch of different angles with this deck yeah i mean you could just go like city of traders chrome mox first turn show and tell progenitus or emerald the ant storm also right like that's yeah. that's a great first turn especially if you have a uh, force of will and days or you know those kind of cards in your deck i guess in the example that i cited days wouldn't help you very much but force of will would mm-hmm. um and so just really fast and powerful and unlike many of the other super fast like second turn kill decks graveyard interaction didn't stop this deck gotcha so anyway back to top right bottom left justice based in part on sam black's one-time modern poison deck speaking of why Sholan <laughs> was banned in gotcha. modern it's because of sam Sholantel is kind of like a cephalid breakfast that isn't vulnerable to graveyard hate it has multiple fast kills with force of will and other backup slash disruption and Jerry's genius gives us, in show-and-tell, something to do with the odd errant progenitus, especially when the opponent has a fistful of removal. Like all combo decks that can steal the turn to kill, in addition to everything else, show-and-tell can also get lucky. Uh-oh. Get lucky. It's story time. Story time. Here we go. So, there I am. Middle of game two. I had won game one. If you asked my opponent, I probably top-decked him to win the first, but whatever. I honestly don't remember. You top-decked him? <laughs> probably. <laughs> he was playing Esper Stoneblade, which seems like all different things can go potentially wrong for him. He has resistance, sure, but I have speed going for me and more discard and counterspells than he has swords to plowshares. I'm harrying a bit with an Ink Moth Nexus, but all my action so far is thought seizes. I hold back Nexus attacking this turn because I don't want to run it into his freshly played Vendillion click. I draw another Thoughtseize. Here it goes. I put myself down to 11 and see three magical spells and or fantastic creatures. Lingering Souls. Lingering Souls. Vendillion click number two. I am certainly not going to take Lingering Souls. No, you're not going to take Lingering Souls there. <laughs> there is only one other option. As much as it pains me, I take a relatively dead Vendillion click and don't attack again. I have multiple man lands, but if I'm going to get through those X1 flyers, I'm going to need to prioritize over one poison tick and preserve cardboard. Mm-hmm. He swings, putting me to eight, and taps all his mana including a Caracas. Uh-oh, he doesn't know what's coming. <laughs> to play and flash back a Lingering Souls. His board is then the four tokens, the click, and one Stoneforge Mystic with no playmate. Batterskull being an early victim of my many thought seizes. At this point, I have three copies of Ink Moth Nexus in play and three various islands. 
I draw Blazing Shoal, leaving me with a two-card hand of the whole shebang. Show and tell might have made for an exciting last couple of turns, but that's not what I drew. Of course, he has a hundred dudes back that can all block. So, the fact that I have the combo is little consolation. I'm thinking about what I'm going to sideboard for game three. Should I try to be faster? I'm going to be on the play, after all. Or should I side an Emrakul and try to powerhouse him? I guess Jason is deck, so that plan is weaker if it isn't online immediately. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> on his turn, he plays a land, leaving him with just the second Lingering Souls in hand and makes a predictable play, sending everyone four tokens, four, the click, seven, and the Mystic makes eight. I make the ho-hum response of activating one Nexus and blocking the click. He proves to me that he knows that Vendillion Click is a legendary creature and picks it up before damage. The danger of cool things. Do you know what the danger of cool things is? No. We should do it in a future episode. It's a great article by my friend Chad Ellis, actually. Okay. Not by me. So, oh. sum it up real fast. What's like the... What's, Excuse me? What's the point of like the, the danger, danger of cool, cool things? things? Sometimes you do things that seem cool or to show your knowledge of the rules, but but it wasn't the right move. And you'll see that it wasn't the right move here. So you're just like, oh, I know that this is a legend. I'm going to pick it up with Caracas. Like, using a bunch of, you know, he's tapping his lands to do that. I take five, stay alive at three, and keep my wannabe blocker. But what's happened, right? He has a Vanillion click back in his hand. Back in his hand, right. I'm super happy with myself for not taking his lingering souls now. Knowing that he is going to make the Vendillion click you on your draw play with only a full-size Lingering Souls in hand, rather than two-thirds cost one in the bin, he can't play more blockers. I draw Brainstorm. Predictably, he replays his click and takes my Blazing Shoal. I move into attack, activate all three of my lands, swing in, and kill him. You know, with the Blazing Shoal he clicked me into. He's going bananas now. You cheated! Wait, did he actually say that? Yes. All kinds of words Magic Online is censoring for me. <laughs> like, all you can see, like, the, there's just gaps, because, like, it's censoring out all the whatever swears, because he's obviously so mad yeah. that he clicked, he, he clicked my, my he clicked shoal and shoal. But you haven't, you, you shoaled him. Yeah. So. Yes, I have Skynet-like superpowers over machines and commanded the internet and I choose to express those abilities by defeating you in a 1v1 Magic Online queue. It is all part of my master plan. Also, don't worry about the vase. Did I get lucky? Maybe a bit lucky. What is lucky? I had less than a 50% chance of drawing one of my remaining shoals. Really, probably around a 10% chance. But astute readers and my opponent should have noticed that I didn't play my brainstorm. Outs were bad. Cards were live. The reality is that even if you want to say I got lucky, what happened in this game was clear-cut justice. Good guys won and bad guys died. My opponent chose left and got bottom left, just like he deserved. Better lucky than good, Chris Cade. So I remember watching, <laughs> I, I, I think this was Journey into Next, where, where Patrick says this on camera. <laughs> what? Better lucky. Better lucky than good. That's a famous thing from 90s magic, right? Yeah, yeah. I know that's like something that's kind of always stuck with me. 
I love that. I love that. That's saying. In my other life, I've had to do a lot of thinking about choices and performance recently, and I came up with this matrix. I try to apply everything I learned to magic, and most everything good in my life has somehow derived from magic. They are the same to me. This matrix might be obvious to some of you, but even though I have a kind of thought through these terms for years, having committed it to paper, I find my thoughts much more structured and useful. Perhaps you will too. So there's a matrix. It's a two-by-two two matrix. Um, the y-axis is strategies, and the x-axis is outcomes. So on the right side are good outcomes, on the left side are bad outcomes. On the top is good strategies, and the bottom is bad strategies. So I referred to my opponent as being bottom left, which is that he did a bad thing and got a bad outcome. That's justice. So he played bad and then... Yeah, that's justice. Sure. Right, okay. This is a pretty simple two-by-two. Two. The x-axis tracks our outcomes, the right side being positive results, and the left side undesirable ones. The y-axis is the quality of our strategies, the measure of a strategy being how predictably repeatable it is. This is something we talked about before, actually. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you will hear gamers say, way to be results-focused, or some such poppycock in an arrogant sing-song. As far as anything I have studied in the wider world, and for that matter, quite a few Pro Tour finals, being results-focused is exactly where you want to be. You want to be squarely focused on results. The best-performing people in every discipline are. Though in gaming, like magic, it usually involves driving results with good strategic decisions. But that's not what they mean. Regardless, Most of the time, most people would rather end up on the right-hand side of the matrix, no matter how they got there. Yeah. Like, you don't care if you donkeyed into the win, right? You just want to be on the right-hand side, right? Sure, but what you're saying here is that you want to make the right decisions, so you end up in this... Well, we'll see what I mean. Okay. There's pages left in... We're not done yet. (laughs) ...in justice. Why do Magic players vilify being results-focused? I am pretty sure... One of them once heard a poker player say it, and Midas assigned it generally, such that it became a, com- a community meme. Because every time I bring up something like, don't you think we should be focused on maximizing our results? Some otherwise wise and successful gamer will leer at me over the top of his glasses and go, you know what I mean. What he means probably is that there is no great pride to be had at landing in the lower right-hand quadrant. You do the wrong thing and win anyway. In Magic, we even have language like, oops, I won, for situations like this. Top that game. Yeah. Yeah. Oops, I won. You won, but not by any great skill. Watsy has tried, at least in some formats, if inconsistently, to restrict that by disallowing cards like Bitter Blossom, where the main decisions were, one, playing Bitter Blossom, and two, casting Bitter Blossom on the second turn. Put another way, the things we choose are top row and bottom row. When considering the things we actually have under our control, we should strive for top row. But because the world is a hazy mess of imperfect correlations, we evaluate success by left column, right column. Me? I'm not going to look a gift win in the bottom right mouth. But if you want to grow and perform at your best, over time, it is important to understand this divide. What do we call someone who, by no virtue of their own, finds themselves with the desired outcome? 
Lucky. There is nothing like showing up for work, putting in your day, and not getting paid. David E. Price, Fire God and Winner, Pro Tour Los Angeles, 1998. That's what Dave told me when he decided to stop being a professional magic player. So, what about being in the top left? He was like ninth in every major tournament for a year. But was he making all the right decisions? I I, I don't know. Maybe he was. He was a great player of his generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. He was one of the first real professional magic players, like traveled every weekend and Mm -hmm. played in a lot of Grand Prix and all this. He won a Pro Tour. He was always qualified for the Pro Tour. When he, quote, required, uh, I'm sorry, retired, end quote, he was qualified for the Pro Tour. He just chose not to play. So, what about being in the top left? You've probably heard a writer like Adrian Sullivan say something like, sometimes the right place screws you. And I think that is observationally valid, at least some of the time. In the short term, I have a hard time believing that many would rather be in the top left than the bottom right. That is, losing nobly instead of winning stupidly. Mm -hmm. But the top left is actually where most masters in most disciplines spend most of their time. If you've heard the 10,000 hours rule, that wonder-making timeline of deep practice shared by the Beatles, Bill Gates, and numerous tennis and soccer stars, popularized by books like Outliers and The Talent Code, many of those 10,000 hours of training up into mastery are spent in the top left. Striving to do the right thing, constant adjustment and readjustment in the face of less-than-optimal outcomes, but driving towards victory. I think the biggest thing is the deep-seated emotional understanding that the right play is the right play regardless of outcomes. The ability to make a decision five straight times, lose five times because of it, and still make it the sixth time if it's the right play. Magic players have been developing that since their teens, and it's just so applicable to poker, gambling, and life in general. Who said that? Johnny Magic. John Finkel. When you are in the top left in a real trial, you get some special opportunities. One of them might be... Were you just unlucky? Try again. Remember, the quality of a strategy is how repeatable it is. If a play gives you the result you want three times out of four, and you happen to have lost the one time you actually had the opportunity to make the right play, it doesn't mean you aren't supposed to do it the next time. Hmm. Did you do the right thing? Well, according to Adrian, sometimes the right play screws you. Other times, it just doesn't matter. Your opponent played a second turn, uncontested bitter blossom. The range of right is losing 80% of the time versus losing 95% of the time. I do think it may be more complicated than this, especially in Magic. Magic is a game of dynamic possibilities. The metagame changes. Sometimes, you are just outgunned at the Pro Tour. Others, you really should have blocked that wolf token. That is why it is often so silly to hear players try to justify out-tech deck choices after the fact. Are you really saying that if you were given another shot, you would play whatever brew instead of Necropotence slash Callblade slash Esper Spirits slash whatever the awesome deck was? That isn't choosing top left. That's a failure to learn from your mistakes. The best place to be, of course, is top right. All right, so I want to interject here because uh, this is, relates to something that happened this past weekend. So 
preparing for Grand Prix New Jersey, um, I tested with like a bunch of different people, like uh, like Bobby uh, Fortinelli and um, Dan Jang, and then I also tested with and like Nathaniel Smith, who's I think currently silver, and then um, also with you know a bunch of different friends. Every one of them was on Mardu. Yeah, like every single one. So before the event, I was really um, contemplating playing like an Aetherworks Marvel deck because I wasn't a fan of Mardu. Um, it just like wasn't my kind of deck, and I wasn't really a fan of Four Colors of Healy either because um, I didn't feel experienced enough with it. So um, I really wanted to play the Marvel deck. I had some friends, uh, my friend Hunter Cochran, who taught me the last standard GP at uh, Pittsburgh. Um, he was playing a Marvel deck, um, but I didn't really know what to pick. So I think 8.30 in the morning <laughs> before the tournament, I register Mardu. You know, everyone's playing it. It's probably going to top, you know, multiple decks are going to top eight the GP that are Mardu. I'm going to play it. I owe three the GP. And probably some of it was on play skill because I, I didn't know the deck super well, but, um, you know, I owe three, right? Um, but after, you know, after the, I, you know, I was like at lunch <laughs> with my friend after I, I had O3 and I was, I was saying, I should have played Marvel. I would have had fun with it. No, maybe it's not the best deck, but, you know, I, I think I would have had a more enjoyable tournament experience. And you played, quote, the best deck and you went and, and I went O3. And I think that was a, a product of, you know, just like <clears throat> being out drawn the mirror. And also I was playing against decks that were kind of gunning for my deck that had main deck answers. Like I played against a black green deck that had, uh, main deck Ishkana, which is like really hard for me to beat when the, they had the upper hand. So, I don't know. So maybe I, I, sh- I should have just said, you so know, the, here's, the, here's the test. Okay. Would you play Mardu again? Probably. After reading it, this. No, no, in, that, in this situation, this you, situation. Would, you would have played Mardu again. So like before, before reading this part right here? Yeah. Yeah, I would have played Marble. Because I, I think I would. But now, been, after reading this, you'd play but, Mardu again. Well, I think I was in, in conversations with my friends. Part of me wanted to say, I should. Oh, I, I was mostly saying I should have played Marvel, but. Can I ask what version of Mardu you played? Of Mardu? Yeah. Um, I played a version that was split between uh, Veteran Motorist and Walking Ballista. Oh, the 2 2 version? Which one? There's two Veteran Motorists. Two, yeah. So, like Marcio's deck? Yeah. I actually think that's the worst one. Okay. Well, the, I'm personally speaking. Sure. Like, if you look at the deck like Raptor used to win the mocks, mm-hmm. or especially the deck that Paul Rietzel played to the top eight, like, Paul's deck is so much better than that deck. Yeah. Right? They're like two different decks. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul's deck is so consistent, and it has such a powerful sideboard. Like, I think that if you're going to play the red version, it has multiple basic mountains. I, I mean, I don't know. Marcio's yeah. number one in the world right now, but I just don't know why you wouldn't play... All the veteran motorists, if sure. you're going to play And I had motorist. friends who, I, 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 and this was a thing, I had multiple different friends playing the four veteran motorist version and not playing, and playing the split two and two, or playing no uh, motorist. It was kind of all different across the... Yeah. But, maybe, so after reading this, I guess, you know, I, I, I still, I think I made a fine deck choice. <laughs> it's kind of going off, this is so weird, this is so different from going rogue. <laughs> well... Now let's keep going, and then we All can right, discuss yeah, it again. Let's discuss it up later on. We were this at... next line is uh, very applicable to you, though. Okay. You, only, you not only got the result you wanted, but you deserved it. <laughs> I don't know what makes you feel pleasant when playing a game of Magic, but my absolute favorite thing is to win a game 
where I had to make a difficult series of decisions, and it all turned out how I drew it up in my head. The last time I took home a blue envelope was in the summer of 2010. My qualifying round, so this was written in 2013. I've obviously yeah. taken home blue envelopes since this, but at the time that I wrote this. Since, since 2013, have we ever taken home like one? One. <laughs> one. <laughs> it was enough. All no, right. I mean, I played multiple Pro Tours in a row because I was qualified from the Pro Tour. My qualifying round was against Jund. I was playing Grixis, and my opponent gave me game one. He overvalued my, actually, Tom Martell's, Jace the Mind Sculptor. If he had just sent his Bloodbraid Elf and Lightning Bolt at me, he would have won. I saw it at the time, but he didn't, so I eked it out. Game two was embarrassing. You ever lost a game where you stuck three cruel ultimatums? I did. Wow. That game too. I actually worked out an exceedingly complicated sequence to win game two and bolted his sideboard as Hydraxis Specter, his anti-spreading sea stack, when it required me to get hit by the Specter to discard my Specter so I could unearth it for the kill. Mm. I had five different ways to deal 19, but screwed up the only way to deal 20. In game three, I just drew more spreading seas than he drew lands. Better lucky than good. I queued. Not satisfying at all. So, here's the thing about being top right. Top left is an opportunity, but top right is a challenge. Ooh, okay. Uh, great job. Now do it again. It's not enough to just win. You might be bottom right and not know it. The quality of a strategy is measured by how repeatable it is. So if you can't do the same thing over and over and keep producing that result, you might want to rethink congratulating yourself. Good coaches often say things like, it's not how well you can do it, but how well you can do it slowly. Masterful. Top right execution and results are repeatable given similar conditions. My opponent and his Caracas re-clicked Vendillion click were clearly bottom left and very far to the left indeed. Luck, he got what he deserved. If he had just played the Lingering Souls, there were no cards in my deck that would have gotten me out of it. If he's going to make his look, I know how Caracas works play. Maybe he should just apply a little game theory. Does he expect me not to block his lethal attack? Maybe he should leave back one token anyway. Did I get lucky? A bit. But he also gave me the widest possible opportunity to do so. And I still had a brainstorm. Mm. You know, just, you know, keeping it real. So I mean, in, in my camera match, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm stuck with three Ulamogs in my hand. Ooh, that, this was painful my, to yeah, watch. My opponent's attacking <laughs> with a Gideon. Yep. I, I luck into... The fourth Ulamog on my Marvel. On your Marvel. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to block this Gideon. So the, the word state was he had a Chandra. I think he wrote like a somewhat low life total. There's a Chandra in play on his side. He also has a Shambling Vent that's tapped. Yeah. And he has uh, an attacking Gideon. Gideon. Just, I think it was just the, the lone Gideon. Maybe there was a Night Token too. But you Marvel into Ulamog. And uh, what were your targets? Uh, shambling Vent and Chandra with the intention of blocking the Gideon. But what happened? He casts. I can't remember. Anguished, Anguished Unmaking. Anguished Unmaking is what he cast. Main deck. And I talked to his V about this afterwards. Yeah. And he said, I probably should have, you know, just played very conservatively because that was the second Anguished Unmaking he had cast in the game. He Anguished Unmaking one of my earlier marvels. So, That's right. Yeah, because you, mar- you went to 
psych something. He, he yeah yeah. Like I was like using Pokemon. So you, you, and... he, you knew that there was a possibility of that card being in this deck. Yeah, but I was like, I was just like this guy with his Caracas play, right? I'm just yeah. like, oh, I'm just I'll block here and then I'll send my ten ten into his Gideon and then mill him for ten. Yeah, but like right apply it. some game theory. Then yeah. you have to attack the Gideon and then you give him a turn to like. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe he he give him a turn to like draw into Hiri and then the Hiri or yeah, I mean, lock, whatever. It was a, a bunch of things can go wrong, right? Like, yeah, if I play it correctly, it's not that I'm definitely going to win, but I took 15 more damage from that Gideon. Exactly, I think, right? I, I had to play so well to survive to, t- to 10 land drops, sure. and then I played exactly into surviving to 10 land drops, and my 10th land was Botanical Sanctum. So I got what I deserved. Yeah. I played wrong, got me with justice. Just keeping it real. Justice. Should have probably won that game. You know, even though I was super unlucky in having gotten all those Ulamogs in my hand. Sure. How to be happy. Would you like to know how to be happy, Roman? Because apparently this article will tell you. Some people believe we live in some kind of morally ordered universe. Many of them have problems understanding top left and bottom right, even though we see these divides every day. The country is such that a lot of smart, educated, and hardworking people are disengaged and out of work. Meanwhile, Steve Saden has a cousin who won a couple million in the lottery, blew it all, like you do, and then desperately in need of cash, won the lottery again. Oh my god. Won the lottery again. (laughs) Clearly. Better lucky than good. A lot of this is luck, good and bad. Yeah. None of us pick our parents where we were born. Some folks start off on second base, but make like they are Steve Jobs-level innovators. One of the things that makes magic so instructive to other endeavors is that we have a great view of the true workings and machinations of the universe that we can glean from ruthless analysis of this great game. Better lucky than good. Better lucky than good, at least in the short term. Most people get bottom left and top right. Merit is rewarded, Wonder Woman has her golden lasso wrapped around top right. Truth, my brothers and sisters. Incompetence is punished. Batman lurks to brain the cowards of bottom left. Justice. You probably got what you deserved. Womp womp. If you want to be as happy as you can in the most situations you can and improve in the things that are important to you, I would recommend focusing on divorcing outcomes especially those out of your control, from your emotional state as much as you can. The great basketball coach John Wooden said that if you should not be able to tell the score of a game by how his team acted after it was over, if they were sad, it was because they put themselves in the bottom row. There was to be no celebration after a bottom right performance. Go back and read what the greatest player of all time said about making the right play, even when it seems painful. Putting yourself in the top row is what you want to do because doing so consistently is the best path to ending up in the right-hand column. The thing that makes the difference in the bottom right is luck, and we can control that much less than we can doing the best thing. Of course, sometimes bad luck or other factors out of your control will put you on the left side rather than the right. I would recommend aligning your emotional satisfaction with being in the top row, whether or not you actually win, rather than the right column, when you will often win through no good work of your own. Elsewise, you might as well stay up all night crying you weren't born the Queen of England. 
So, my other deck actually modified the Rainmaker's deck. All right. Ooh, burn. I like it already. Uh, four Goblin Guide, four Grim Lava Mancer, eight Mountain. Th- does this say Arid Mesa? Just read. Wait, no, but this says Arid Mesa. This is a only Mountain deck. Sure, sure, sure. But what did Foothills? Just okay. read. Four Bloodstained Wire, four Scalding Tarn, four Fire Blast, four Lightning Bolt, four Price of Progress, four Searing Plays, four Skullcrack, four Chain Lightning, four Lava Spike, four Rift Bolt, Cyborg, four Ensnaring Bridge, four Isochron Scepter, four Vexing Shusher, three Smash to Smithereens. I am not overly enamored with Mono Red's ability to sideboard in Legacy, but Ensnaring Bridge has proven to be a pretty solid defensive option. You can drop it on their show-and-tell and not lose sometimes. Though, to be honest, I feel like I lose to a lot more Emrakul's Game 1 and other combo sequences off of show-and-tell in sideboard games. You know, the ones where I have just slammed a free ensnaring bridge? You can just cast it, get cards out of your hand, and paralyze many a Tarmogoyf, buying time to burn them out. I'll probably get some kind of red elemental blasts into my sideboard before Edison. I've been a bit lukewarm on Scepter recently. And of course, there's Patrick's Guerrilla Tactics. Sideboarding, of course, is a pivotal opportunity to put yourself in the top row or doom yourself to the bottom left. Love, Mike. I'll right. tell you a story about the first mistake I ever made on the Pro Tour. Okay. It's around Guerrilla Tactics. Do you know what Guerrilla Tactics is? No. Guerrilla Tactics is an instant from the set Alliances. It costs R1. It has the text, deal two damage to target creature or player. However, okay. Guerrilla Tactics has an additional feature, which is that if you are forced to discard it, it will deal four damage to target creature or player. In my very first match on the Pro Tour, I was playing a Necropotence Black Red deck mm-hmm. against an, some kind of a Necropotence deck. My opponent played Hypnotic Spectre. I had the card Guerrilla Tactics in my hand. And I do not know why I would do this, other than I must have had one of those danger of cool things moments. Mm-hmm. He goes to attack me with the Hypnotic Spectre, and I take it under the some kind of weird thought that maybe I will randomly discard the Gorilla Tactics to kill the Hypnotic Spectre. Did that random you discard? Yeah. Oh. But I could have just killed the Hypnotic Spectre. It's a 2-2, two, two, right? Yeah. Yeah. You just... So I took two damage. Yeah. I didn't discard the... I think I discarded some awesome card I needed, like a Necropotence, right? Yeah. And then, like, he was very puzzled why I would Guerrilla Tactics his Hypnotic Spectre after it hit me already. Right? So, that was the first mistake I ever made. But it was, like, this was many years ago, so the notion of tight technical play was very... It hadn't even been developed yet, really. Yeah. Back in 1996, I think. Which is not to say that my play wasn't horrendously wrong. I saw that you could Guerrilla Tactics the Hypnotic Spectre. It just seemed cooler to me to discard it. Like, taking two for no reason... And the four damage is like overload damage makes no sense. Yeah. Right? This creature only has toughness too. But that's, that's the first uh, mistake I ever made on the Pro Tour, I think. Um, it was my very first match on the Pro Tour. But Guerrilla Tactics is an interesting card to play in Legacy because if you play against like Liliana the Veil, they make both players discard. Mm-hmm. Braining someone for four seems awesome. So what do you think about that Legacy deck at the end? I mean, I don't play much Legacy, but as Goblin Guide. But it doesn't have Monastery Swift Spear or, or I don't uh, Great Ooh, okay. <laughs> they hadn't been printed yet when I wrote this article. I think I would play 20 Mountains now, because we, we're probably not going to play Grim Lava Mancer. Yeah. Right, so 
there's kind of no reason to do like six damage to yourself unless you want to i don't know like thin your deck i mean people talk about that like but... thinning your deck I mean, do we really want to talk about thinning your deck? No, that's not. That's not. Good. I don't want to talk we about how more... I watched you play your lands in that legacy and that modern side tournament. Okay, we're going to talk about the article now. Okay, let's talk about the article. <laughs> what did you think about this article? So this last like couple paragraphs, um, how do you, I guess, factor that in with <laughs> how to win a PTQ? Like, um, uh, divorcing outcomes from your emotional state. As much as you can. So, because in, in How to PTQ, the, the mindset is, I'm destined to win this event, right? Well, those things are not mutually exclusive. Sure. Right? So, I can say, I can approach every tournament I enter with the belief that I can win the tournament, right? Yeah. Most people don't have that belief when they enter the tournament, right? They enter the tournament with the belief, I'm probably not going to win, mm-hmm. right? Or I'm aiming for a top, I'm aiming for this. Yeah, or they, sh- or, they, or they aim low and fall short of aiming low, right? If yeah. you aim always for the top, Falling short of the top puts you closer to the top, right? Yeah. And then using the tools necessary to, to, to be closer to the top, especially when you're riding variants, um, leads you to very different decisions, I think, than, mm-hmm. than the converse. Um, generally speaking, I'd say I just I want to try to do the right thing as often as possible. And that being happy when you win, even if you were crappy, doesn't put you in a better place. I got you. And being sad when you lose, when you played perfectly, or, you know, call it perfectly, whatever, you made the right decisions for the most part, is, that's maddening, right? Like, you're going to go nutso thinking that way, right? Like, when are you supposed to be happy then? Right? That, mm. that's, it's, that's, that's, that's putting you off kilter. That's a, that's a real, like, discipline to have, is to, you know, always, always go to make the right play, even if it, you get punished for it. Yeah, you have to. The, the other thing is, I think this article intimates it a little bit, is that many of us are not even qualified to determine if we made the right play or not. Yeah, then I, yep. that's the thing. We don't have, like, a, an <laughs> omnipotent, like, magic player looking over our shoulder all the time. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you were around me when, I think I was playing with KYT at the Grand Prix, just playing for, we played, like, a dozen games or something for fun. Mm. And John Finkel was sitting with us, and he was just, like, transfixed couldn't look away you know watching us play and was that new jersey this yeah this past weekend right so he's just transfixed watching us play and you know just look at myself right i'm a well above average player when compared with mortal players right i am not one percent of the player that john finkel is but because of that john sees mistakes in almost every single thing that i would do and I have generally good outcomes, right? It's just on average, I have much better outcomes than the average person. Imagine that you didn't have John Finkel as the person who's determining if you made the right play or not. If you just had generally good outcomes, you might make perhaps a false assumption that you're making, that you're making the right yep. plays, right? So like, you, like win, 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 but you made like 20 mistakes in a game that you won that's in a, it's potentially badly reinforcing behaviors, mm. right? So you should strive. Anyway, the lesson I hope here is that you should s- strive to make the best plays, but that you should accept the wins, right? So mm. that's actually part of how to win a PTQ. Like, use every part of the buffalo, eke every point of value you can out. 
sometimes you don't play great and sometimes you fall short and you your spirit not your technical play is the thing that makes you win that's the thing about how to win a pzq mm, okay there are many tools right this is an article about making the right decisions how to win a pzq is an article about using every single tool at your at your disposal can you screw up three times in a row and still win the pro tour yes gabriel nasif has proven this on multiple occasions gabriel nasif you, you know yellow yeah. hat right I don't know, fourth best player of all time, something like this, is famous for horrendously getting himself into a bad situation, but then playing out of it. And the thing is, the reason he's famous for this is that most people who get into these horrible situations that Nassif gets into just lose, right? So you don't under, you're, there, you have no opportunity to see the heroism of his, of his play, right? Mm-hmm. Or players are just, they don't, they never make the mistake that he made early on in the game and then they just win. I think that the lesson that Nassif gives us is that you can be one of the greats, one of the all time greats, maybe the fourth best player of all time, right? And still be mortal, right? Like you made a mistake. You, you played like Roman Fusco for two turns, but you know what? You get your yellow hat back on straight, you tighten up, you figure out, you grit your teeth, stop making mistakes, and you pull yourself out of it, right? Imagine at regionals when you killed yourself with the Eidolons, right? <laughs> yeah. A lot of players would sink in their chair and just go home at that point. That was a camera match, right? Yeah. What did you do? You mulliganed to five and murdered a guy who had two <laughs> on-table kills, okay? That was not on your skill, my friend. <laughs> But you have to be willing to take it when opportunity is there, right? Exactly. I do not think these two articles are are enemies. I think that they talk about different parts okay. of the universe. That makes sense. So they're not like at because when I was reading this paragraph, I was thinking, I thought you weren't supposed to really have that like emotional, or I thought you were supposed to have that like emotional attachment. But well, you you have to have you have to have belief. You have to have belief in yourself. Yeah. Okay. But I. This is a section about how to be happy, right? Not about how Not to be PTQ. Those are two different. Those are two different skills, right? Mm-hmm. In and that you can that you can master in life. I would I would be overjoyed to master the skill of how to be happy. I'm I'm not quite there yet. So what did you think? Did you like this one? I like this one. I think I've always been a player who's been trying to get better at play skill, and I think sometimes. Maybe this is like a confidence thing, but I know I've like sometimes I've won tournaments or even like smaller tournaments, and I felt that I haven't like I didn't truly deserve it. Regionals, I think I deserved because I think I played very well during regionals. Except, except the matches on camera. Except that, that yeah. Well, <laughs> that one game on I'll say that game on camera. But I don't want to take anything away from your win. Sure, sure. Everything that I've written about this podcast starts with regional champion Roman Fusco. <laughs> um, but the P the, the PBTQ I won. You know, in the fall, I I didn't think I played that very well. I think I played fine, but I, I remember winning the, that PPDQ and being like, "Oh, I just got lucky." Like the start of the line, but you played a deck that has the capa- capability of being lucky. Sure, that's like you you put yourself in top right when you make a deck decision. Okay, that is so rewarding. Maybe the 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 skill like all right. So maybe my skill wasn't in the top <laughs> right, but some of my choice that that the, the deck choice was. Yeah, I mean, 
the sum total of your experience is not about just choosing one thing, typically. Okay. I mean, unless you do something like if you murder someone, right, that probably colors most of your experience for the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that the context of winning a magic tournament, a single decision is unlikely to, to color every, sure. uh, every experience afterwards. Yeah. I, I do like this idea of striving to always be in the, the top right. I know, um, so last summer I, I team drafted a lot. Um, and my team was me, uh, Gabe Reale, who's SG Doc on Twitch, and uh, Andy Longo. Um, Andy Longo is a Grand Prix Top 4 competitor. No, he won. His team won the Grand Prix. All right. That is a Grand Prix Top okay, 4. Okay, whatever. Right. He's a Grand Prix champion. Grand Prix champion. Sure. Um, a team limited Grand Prix champion. Um, and I, so during our, our team drafts, um, I was probably the worst, you know, started out as the worst player on the team. I was thrilled to be playing with Andy Longo because, you know, he's someone. When I, I moved uh, to New York and started playing with like someone I looked up to, yeah. Um, so he would always sit uh, on my right, and I would always feel like this, like just stare. I was playing match, but I could, I could just feel his gaze on me because he was always looking like at my place after the match. He would be like, "Roman, you did this wrong here, this wrong here, this wrong here. Why did you do this? Why did you do Why did you do this, Roman?" Um, but you know, the positive thing was by the end of the season, I was drafting. I was playing a lot better. I I was making good. I was making better attacks. I was learning like not to be like scared in certain in certain situations. I should like go for it here. Um, being this like being this strategy, and, like it, it was just um a good experience because I I feel like I, I learned a lot um as a limited player from having that like the like, having him on my right all those all yeah. those matches. And by the end of it, you know, we we. Um, you won the season. We didn't win the season. We um, we we lost the finals. I almost won it for us all. This is a terrible Terrible, your story. Whatever. We we still did pretty well, and it was a lot of fun. I blame my teammates in the in the finals though, (laughs) because after I was I was still in my my first match, and my teammates started off 0-2. Both started 0-2. Um, no, but those guys are great, and um, I definitely learned a lot, and I think it's that's that's a decision you should make to try and be in that top right. The th- reason I think I wrote this article is that I just hate this idea. Gamers are always saying, like, way to be so results-focused. They, results they don't even know what it means, right? Like, mm-hmm. they just heard some poker players say it, or, like, they read it, and they just... They just gotta be lucky, man. Better lucky than good. They don't understand. Like, the excellence in almost every endeavor is defined by results, mm-hmm. right? And... That's how the narratives get written. That's how, you know, that's how history gets made. It's who gets big bonuses. That's who gets big contracts in sports. And the idea that you shouldn't be results-focused is flawed. You shouldn't be bottom right, okay? Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, actually, it's okay to be bottom right. It's, like, it's better to be bottom right than, than a lot of other places, okay? Yeah. But you can't replicate bottom right. That's the thing. The strategy of bottom isn't replicable. It's not that it doesn't get you to the right. It's that you can't do it again, mm-hmm. right? So you have to choose replicable strategies. Yeah, and even if you're in top left, you know, once those chances come where you are lucky and, you know, every justice is served, you know, everything flows super well. Everything goes, like, everything... Or at least just, you like, win a game of magic. Be, sure, yeah. you win a game of magic. All right. All right. Let's go get some dinner. Bye. Right.